We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Bill Foreman. It's always great to be here, Gavin. And Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing China's ban on the import of Taiwan pineapples and the politicos rushing to push domestic sales, a questionable report by the United States Trade Representative in which it voices serious concerns about Taiwan's agricultural policies, a petition calling for a referendum to scrap plans by CPC to build a liquefied natural gas receiving station in Taoyuan, 228 incidents being remembered at seemingly competing events in Taipei and Kaohsiung, and a Tainan man setting a new record by taking a new 20 character whopping great name. But we'll begin with coronavirus vaccine news and Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Wednesday of this week confirming that a total of 117,000 doses of the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine arrived on in Taiwan on the same day. Chen says they will be administered first to healthcare workers who have direct contact with coronavirus patients. The vaccines arrived at Taoyuan International Airport on a Korean air flight before being transported to a cold storage facility. Reports had initially claimed that the shipment was from the COVAX allocation programme, but the health minister says the delivery was in fact part of the 10 million doses Taiwan has ordered directly from AstraZeneca. The Food and Drug Administration is now carrying out an inspection process for the vaccines. Although that process could take between 30 and 40 days, the health minister says the process has now been sped up internationally due to the pandemic. However, he stressed it's unlikely that it can be shortened to as few as seven days, as had been claimed by several FDA officials. The health minister says the first batch, well, due to it being the first batch, he said, drug safety officials will be cautious in the inspection process and he's now refusing to say when the vaccines will be distributed. The Central Epidemic Command Centre last week issued a priority list of 10 categories of people for inoculation and this week released a more detailed version of the first category, breaking it down into four distinct groups. So, Brian, we've now got the AstraZeneca virus inoculation doses here but not many of them obviously this is a first batch um yeah that's right and so i think uh, what's interesting is that then the uh, Thai administration now has pressure to distribute uh covid19 vaccines in a timely manner um efficiently uh, making sure it gets to the right people um having outlined this plan now i think that then the opposition the kmt will perhaps challenge the Thai administration on you know whether actually this is getting to medical personnel for example um with these different categories i think that sometimes if for example a government official gets it or let's say a diplomat the kmt might attack this, claiming that, for example, uh, this person should not have gotten it, that the medical personnel should have gotten first. This is a sign of, for example, uh, favoritism. Um, that sort of thing might come up. And I think there, there, with uh, these kind of questions increasing raised by the KMT, uh, challenging the the uh, delays, um, just saying that this is due to Chinese interference. If we were in power, perhaps this would not be happening. But also, for example, people such as uh, former President Ma Ying-jeou calling for considering using Chinese vaccines uh, with the kind of vaccine that got here first being the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has similar uh, efficacy to Chinese vaccines. Uh, you'll see challenges along these lines as well, saying that perhaps it's not getting, we're not getting enough, uh, it's not getting out there fast enough. We should consider Chinese vaccines and that sort of thing. So I think this will continue to actually be an uh, arena of political tension between the DPP and the KMT. You know, from a business and corporate point of view, I, th- I thought it was really interesting that AstraZeneca was the was going is the first company to bring the vi- virus vaccine here. Um, this is a company that's been in Taiwan for a long time. It's it's been operating here for over seventy years. It first set up operations in nineteen forty eight. Um, its forerunner did this, which was called at that time the Imperial Chemical Industries, 
And at the time, the, co the company was bringing an anti-malarial drug to this market. Malaria was a huge problem in Taiwan. And uh, AstraZeneca, the, uh, at the time, played a key role in helping Taiwan become the first malaria-free area in the Western Pacific. That was in 1965. So, yeah, the company has a lot of history here. And, and uh, so I found it interesting that it was the first one to bring the, the, the vaccine. And, well, Brian, what about the other vaccines? Of course, Taiwan has actually ordered 5.05 million doses of the Moderna vaccine and 4.76 million doses of vaccines through the COVAX that's right. I think also it'll be a political issue as to, uh, you know, who gets these vaccines, uh, so because these are the vaccines that are considered to have higher efficacy. And so this might also become a kind of point of con uh, conflict. I think that people generally want the vaccine that has the highest efficacy, and so people will be clamoring for that. And there will be concern, for example, about people uh, not showing up for the second shots, um, going around, uh, just believing that the vaccine makes them invulnerable to COVID, which it doesn't, um, even just uh, maybe mixing up shots. Hopefully that does not happen. Um, and so I think this will also continue to be an issue. I think also then we might have a contention down the line, let's say, for example, if distribution is not effective, if you have long lines or it's backed up, um, similar to some of the initial uh, complaints about the mask distribution network that was set up by the Tsai administration at the start of this pandemic. There were long lines and, and so forth, or even just the the uh, triple uh, stimulus vouchers that were handed out as an economic measure um, to boost spending during the uh, pandemic. And Brian, you, you talked about people missing shots. Actually, Brian, in the UK, this is... The in the UK, what they're doing is if people miss shots or forget which shot they've had, <laughs> they're simply being given another shot of another brand and then going back that many weeks later to get that same brand again. Mm -hmm. So they've thought about that one, obviously, there. They, you know, People miss shots, don't worry, just get a different brand and get the other shot from the same brand, but write it down this time. Mm -hmm. That's right, and hopefully that, that does work. Hopefully we don't have too many cases of that either. And, of course, Bill, we've still got talk of Taiwan buying 5 million doses of the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine. Right, right. That's a, that's, that's been another successful vaccine, and... and um, you know, you know, there's. I think there's been some 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 hang-ups there, right? With 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 China. So people have said. Yes, yeah, so people <laughs> have said. So it's it's good to get that sorted out, and um, yeah, the, the the more the better, actually. I mean, do you see any more batches coming in soon, Brian? I mean, obviously you said there could be problems and contentious issues surrounding the vaccine, but do you think if Taiwan doesn't get more doses ASAP, there could be big problems? Well, I think politically it'll become an issue for the Tsai administration, but at the same time, people in Taiwan, I don't think, are exactly clamoring to get anywhere currently. People are, I hope, aware that Taiwan is doing relatively okay in terms of the COVID-19 situation. Things are stable. There's never been a lockdown. And so I think because of that, people are not really clamoring to get these vaccines to go places. Um, but of course, there are concerns about just holes in the uh, network to prevent COVID-19 from spreading. And there are some people that do want to or need to travel abroad for business or visiting relatives and, and that sort of thing. And so I think uh, there's that. And moving on, Taiwan went pineapple crazy this week after China last Friday announced it was suspending imports of the fruit, citing concerns over the discovery of insects in the fruit some 13 times since last year. The Council of Agriculture, though, is dismissing the insect claim, saying that of the 6,200 batches of pineapples exported to China since last year, 99.79% passed customs testing prior to being exported. While agriculture officials have been stressing the need for pineapple farmers to diversify their export 
public markets. Local politicians have been busy trying to rally the public to the cause and doing their best to get more people to, well, buy more pineapples. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu led the charge shortly after Beijing announced the import ban, taking to Twitter to say, stand with Taiwan and rally behind the freedom pineapple. And as the Foreign Ministry's Twitter page is predictably enough, not a place that a vast majority of people who live in Taiwan go to get their news and views, the heads of the island's two main political parties have also been taking the message to the people. President Tsai Ing-wen has been busy promoting pineapples with DPP local government heads and also announced the formation of a DPP national pineapple team. And she's urging consumers to buy fresh pineapples and pineapple-based products. Tsai also joined the heads of local governments in Jai, Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong, which are the island's main pineapple production areas. Now, KMT chairman Johnny Jung was also busy touting the merits of local pineapples, saying the party will be using its online platforms to help promote sales, and he asked KMT mayors and county commissioners across the island to join forces to help support domestic pineapple growers. However, Jung also touted the Chinese market's importance for domestic farmers and urged the government here to seek talks with Beijing to discuss the matter. Jung says he believes that inspections should be performed in batches and only problematic pineapples that are imported to China be returned to Taiwan, saying that this would help mitigate farmers' losses. And if all that wasn't enough to whet your appetite for a nice, fresh Taiwan-grown pineapple, then the de facto US and Canadian embassies here on the island praise the quality of local pineapples, showing off photographs of their top diplomats in Taipei with the fruit. So, Bill, how many pineapples have you bought this week, mate? I haven't bought any. I was just at a market the other day and I, I made a mental note to buy one, but then I didn't circle back to the stand to get it. But I, I absolutely love Taiwan Taiwanese pineapples. They're fantastic. And it's 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 obvious what China is doing here. Again, they're weaponizing trade and, and uh, it's backfiring on them. It's backfiring because the you know the public uh, is rallying around uh, the, the flag and the pineapple and the fruit and, and it's a it's a s- symbol of Taiwan. It's a it's a food obsessed culture. And uh, look, it's brought the the, the, two, the the parties together. So it's 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 another really ham-handed attempt uh, by Beijing to to try to split the society. And Brian, there was also talks of wax apples being banned by China, but apparently that only turned into one batch. Mm. Yeah, that's a question actually. Then will China continue similar measures? Will it actually, for example, target other fruits or other agricultural products? Um, the fact is that Taiwan does block um, six hundred different kinds of agricultural products, which is actually a decrease from the past under the Ma administration, in which there was over eight. 800 products. Um, but then I think uh, what's interesting then is the, this perhaps was a move intended to benefit the KMT. Uh, there are many farmers in Taiwan that have traditionally been concerned about what happens if they vote Pan Green, for example. They might be cut off from access to agricultural networks, um, farmers associations, or irrigation networks um, because of just Pan Blue uh, presence within these organizations. Uh, historically, they served as kind of networks for uh, clientelism. And so perhaps China was trying to aid the KMT here, but this is an interesting case in which the KMT actually had to kind of back down and, and criticize China. It didn't actually work out in uh, in the KMT's favor. And so I think it's a question, will, will there these be more of this kind of targeting by China in the future? And of course, Bill, if there is, I mean, there's only so much pineapples people can actually eat without getting sort of peed off with pineapples, so to speak. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. What, what really interests me here is that, you know, these, these food stories, pineapples and then the controversy over pork, uh, they stir up a lot of uh, controversy, get a lot of attention, get a lot of headlines, and you'd think that agriculture was a agriculture is a huge section of Taiwan's uh, 710 billion dollar economy. But um, do you know what percentage uh, agriculture makes up of the economy? Only two percent 
according according to Bloomberg. It's it's it's, it's a small chunk of the economy, but you know, as as Brian um, uh, mentioned. Farmers are have a lot of power in, in politics. It's a constituency that can that is very loud and, and very organized, and especially down south. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's an important constituency of, of, of these Taiwanese political parties. So they they have to uh, treat them well. But of course, normal trade issues between countries are dealt with through the World Trade Organization, where they go for arbitration. But of course. Taiwan has a problem there, or so screamed the China Times this week, when it questioned whether if China continues to use these import bans to hurt Taiwan, Taiwan really has no place to go. Because, of course, as Brian pointed out, Taiwan bans Chinese products if it takes it to the World Health Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, rather, for arbitration, then Taiwan could end up being hurt and having to import more Chinese products to level the playing field. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the thing is that all these these countries... Uh, weaponized trade to a certain certain de- degree, and 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 there are all kinds of loopholes in the, in the WTO regulations that allow them to do this. So, um, yeah, you live and die by the sword, don't you? Do you think the government has considered going to the WTO? Um, they've certainly talked about it. Yes. Mm, yeah, and there are calls from the public to do this as well. Um, but I think that it's probably the government will try to keep a low profile on this. There's talk that, for example, the government will try to mimic what Australia did with the uh, response to do uh, the, the the tariffs imposed on Australian wine. Um, so in that case, just trying to keep a low profile and not really making this too big of an issue. But I think, uh, as with other international organizations, the China can throw its weight around within the WTO, and so this is also possible. I think that this is uh, interesting that in, in recent years, for example, there's this uh, ban on Taiwanese pineapples, but also the tariffs on Australian wine, but also a concern boycott of, for example, South Korean products uh, because of the controversy over the deployment of the THAAD anti-missile system. So this is kind of something that China has done in recent years. And so I wonder if there will be targeting of other uh, products or particularly other agricultural products. Um, I mean, it's, it's mostly things that are substitutable for China. They're replaceable. Um, they're not, for example, intermediate products. It's not like China's been blocking semiconductors, which it itself needs. But uh, it's also a question like what ways will China try to make Taiwan hurt on the trade front? And of course, Bill, the importance of diversifying your markets. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, several countries are are learning about this, the perils of being too reliant on the China on the China market, and, and the need to diversify. Certainly. I mean, where could they diversify to? Do you think? Obviously, they're sending they're now sending pineapples to Australia. Uh, there's talk of sending pineapples to Japan, but of course, this could be a short term fix for the problem. It it could be it could be, but I, I would I'm pretty confident there's a pretty big market out there for pineapples. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think uh, it's interesting, too, because the timing is is aimed to hurt Taiwanese pineapple growers. The harvest season seems to be from February to June. Um, at the same time, though, just actually the uh, most Taiwanese pineapples are consumed domestically. It's only 10% they're exported. And so they should have perhaps gone with a product that is mostly exported. Um, in this case, it seems actually pretty easy to deal with. But I think it's a question about other products in the future. And of course, Brian, there was talk on Thursday by a DPP lawmaker who accused a couple of former agriculture ministers are actually helping to take Taiwan's know-how in fruit production to China. It's, it's actually funny then, because this is a case in which the, uh, the technology transfer issue regarding uh, China, or just the theft of, of IP, comes up, even regarding fruit. I mean, the accusation is that, that China has taken uh, Taiwanese pineapple uh, strains and, and actually just taken them for its own, and that the KMT allowed for this to happen by uh, allowing for just to, these kind of uh, people to go over and uh, go there in return for economic incentives, and, and they even try to promote this kind of actively in terms of trying to facilitate cross-strait relations. And so I think that, that it's funny how this accusation comes up even in regards to pineapples. 
But of course, do you think that's poss do you think that's oh, possibly overplayed, Bill? There, I mean, you think really think that former agriculture ministers would have said, given the secrets to somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be a little overplayed, and it's not not too hard for China to to acquire the, those those secrets on the, uh, you know by themselves. I mean, there have been reports with with the Chinese doing that in the United States with with uh, with corn. Really? With hybrid coin seeds, yes. All right. Well, there we go. Anyway, with a pending referendum in August coming up in which the KMT is seeking the reversal of the government's opening Taiwan to imports of US pork products containing ractopamine, the United States Trade Representative Office this week expressed its serious concerns about Taiwan's agricultural policies, saying they're not based on science. Now, the 2021 trade policy agenda and the 2020 annual report both stressed that it's a priority for the United States to remove Taiwan's various barriers to market access for US pork and beef products. The report, though, made no acknowledgement that Taiwan did take some steps towards addressing the concerns on the pork and beef issue last year. However, the report did highlight other areas of concern and priorities for Washington, those being Taiwan's rice procurement systems, the regulatory process for setting pesticide maximum residue limits and market access barriers facing US agricultural biotechnology products. So, Bill, there you go. Your country is not happy <laughs> about Taiwan's agricultural export policies, but apparently they forgot to mention the pork issue. Yeah, I was, I was very befuddled and, and, and disappointed with this because you know, President Tsai did make this concession on pork and expended a, a great deal of political capital doing it. It created a lot of controversy and backlash. Um, what I find interesting is that there, there have been people who, who have all along have believed that the United States was, was never, never serious about solving pork and beef with Taiwan and that they wanted the, 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 the controversy, the, the, the disagreement to continue on because it gave them a good, good excuse not to have to deal with the prickly Taiwan issue and, and anger China. So I think, I think this report by USTR really uh, fe feeds that kind of conspiracy theory. Also, Brian, it feeds the conspiracy or the theory that was being thrown about by the KMT concerning the ractopamine pork that the US was basically never, ever going to sign a free trade agreement with Taiwan, whether Taiwan lifted the bans on pork products containing ractopamine or not. Yeah, I think this is something the KMT is arguing for. And so the KMT is historically the pro-China party. It always comments skeptically on closer relations between Taiwan and America, claiming that this is actually provocative of China and so forth. And so I think regarding trade agreements, you see the same thing, although despite that, when it was in power itself, it also pushed for the lifting of these restrictions. And so you have this an issue on which the two parties have effectively traded positions. Um, but it is interesting in that sense that there hasn't been this uh, any kind of uh, support from the U.S. for the Taiwan mission on this. And this raises the questions then of just what future U.S.-Taiwan trade relations will be. Um, I think in, in respect, it's, it's one of these uh, long-standing issues regarding uh, bilateral trade agreements or just trade between countries of uh, equivalency of food safety regimes. And, and it's not surprising that this comes up as an issue here. Um, but I think what's interesting is uh, also the U.S.'s concern about the referendum, I think specifically. Historically, the U.S. has been concerned with the referendum that the DPP will push for using this as a way to uh, try to push for independence. But this is another way in which I think just having the referendum on uh, pork actually concerns the U.S. perhaps. And I also think it's uh, quite interesting in that respect that um, there hasn't been, for example, responses to the U.S. regarding the Tsai administration's measures to assist the domestic pork industry, as in reacted against this as, for example, protectionism. And so I feel like if there is a more uh, attention paid to this issue by the U.S., perhaps in the future you will actually have this concern that, okay, well, Tsai did this, it lifted the, the import restrictions, but it's actually acting in a protectionist matter, and so we're still not going to go for a trade agreement. And Bill, of course, the, if the referendum passes, the government will theoretically 
that's capital theoretically, have to stop U.S. pork imports. Yes, that 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 would that would not be good. That would not be good. But I'm you know going back to the free trade agreement. I'm I'm still an optimist that that uh, it, it could work out. And um, you know, Taiwan is America's tenth largest trading partner in goods. Um, but the thing is that the Biden administration is not going to have any kind of mental space at least for a year or two uh, before it can really even start to consider a free trade agreement with Taiwan. And the Carnegie Endowment uh, just released a really interesting paper that, that argued that what Taiwan needs to be doing is it's got some really great momentum with, with the United States now, and it's got to keep that going and find some, some quick wins, or to use their terminology, shovel-ready initiatives. And they, they have three suggestions. Uh, you know, one would be senior-level talks um, that would touch on issues like science and technology and renewable energy and women's empowerment. Um, the other thing is that, that, that the United States and Taiwan should renew, restart the so-called TIFA talks. These are This is kind of the main channel for resolving technical regulatory issues. Um, the, the last time they held TIFA talks was 2016. 2016, that's a long time ago. So they really should restart that. And the third, third really good suggestion um, was that the U.S. Commerce Department should host a meeting with Taiwanese counterparts to discuss um, bilateral trade and investment opportunities. So there are a lot of kind of quick wins the two sides should be focused on rather than, than the, the, the big, big bulky thing, the, the free trade agreement. I think so. And so I think uh, particularly because of the transition in administration, there's this narrative of building up to a BTA with these trade talks with uh, Keith Kroc coming to Taiwan, for example. And so I think then for Tsai, perhaps one way around this, around this, uh, the fact that there will be delays is to continue to have to build this narrative of progress of getting somewhere. And so I think that's that's absolutely right. There needs to be wins that Tsai can trumpet in order to kind of stave off this criticism from the KMT, from the opposition, from uh, society at large. And so I think that uh, if Tsai is intelligent, she will have some, something prepared for that, or at least is able to PR-wise manage this. But in the meantime, I think this this touches on the kind of broader evaluation of what is the U.S.-Taiwan relation at present, economic, uh, diplomatic, militarily, whatever, that we're kind of seeing uh, right now with the uh, recent presidential transition. That's a, that's a good that's a good point uh, Brian's making here, that uh, a lot of these quick wins that can then be folded into a bilateral trade agreement uh, Taiwan can use the so-called building block approach, where it comes up with a with a whole series of of agreements that then, or, or that become chapters of a bilateral trade agreement that then just it all comes together once the United States is ready to go for it. But either first, the government here should possibly tell the Biden administration to take out the cut and paste bit when they file reports and actually update their reports properly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that's USTR. It's been a been a source of frustration. Um, one thing about USTR is that they they always complain that they don't have enough bandwidth to deal with Taiwan. See, Taiwan is it, USTR. Taiwan is lumped together with with China, Hong Kong, and Mongolia, and China sucks up a lot of time and attention there. I've I've always advocated that Taiwan they should extract Taiwan from that cluster and group it together with with Korea and and Japan. Uh, Taiwan's economy is much more similar to Korea's and Japan, and that might that might give uh, the, the teams at USTR more time to focus on Taiwan. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. <music> well. 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and a petition aimed at paving the way for the launch of a national referendum against a CPC liquefied natural gas receiving station project in Taoyuan has passed the second, second stage legal threshold for official consideration. The referendum petition was initiated by Rescue Dartan's Algal Reefs Alliance Covenant Pan Zhongzheng and he says the group opted to extend the petition deadline until March the 10th and collect more signatures in order to ensure that the issue was widely understood by the public and that it garnered widespread public attention and support ahead of the public referendum, which could take place on August the 28th. The alliance has been raising awareness about the LNG product since last year, arguing that the project off the coast of Dartan endangers the survival of the 7,000-year-old algae reefs there. Now, the government is busy defending the project with Cabinet spokesman Lo Bingjung saying the government is committed to protecting the algae reefs, but also has the responsibility to fully meet the country's energy needs. Now, according to law, the government has cut the original size of the 232-hectare area planned for the project by 90% to minimise the potential environmental impact on the reef's area and fund will also be established to protect the ecosystem in the area. Law also says that while the government has reviewed alternative locations, there are a range of issues there, and he pointed out that if the LNG station was relocated to the Taipei port area, an additional 40 kilometres of LNG cables would have to be installed, and he said that will cause other environmental and economic difficulties. And the Premier, later on this week, came out and basically said, well, you know, if you want us to get rid of the use of coal, we need to do something about it, but we're fully aware it causes other problems. Problems, Brian. So, you know, but they want to phase out coal. LNG station is very useful to do that, but there's these reefs problem in the way. Mm, that's right. And so it does touches on the larger questions uh, regarding Taiwan's energy mix as well as environmental issues. And so the DPP is a party that historically emphasized environmental issues, but then now in power in some ways it has traded positions with the KMT. And so this is true of the Raktopian pork issue. And it's also true of this issue. In the past, it was the KMT that backed the uh, liquefied gas terminal. It was the one that originally proposed this, this notion. But now that it is the opposition, it is opposing this now. And it's using the referendum as a means of attacking the DPP. So the DPP has tried to defend itself, uh, saying that it's the environmental effects will be limited also so pointing to that, they reduced the size of the uh, the terminal by 90% compared to the previous plans of the KMT. But in this sense, I think the KMT is is actually, uh, it seems that it has been quite successful in using the referendum issue. Uh, there were originally plans to call the referendum off, except for the fact that the KMT jumped on board and that allowed for 30,000 to 60,000 signatures to be gathered every day. And especially there's a lot of the kind of uh, forces that, uh, or politicians that the DPP recruited in the last set of elections that came from environmentalism. For example, legislator at large, Hong Sun Han, in a kind of awkward position. Um, he was the uh, Deputy Secretary General of the Green Citizen Action Alliance, one of these key uh, pan-green-leading environmental groups. Um, but then this raised issues, and I think the KMT is also pushing for uh, nuclear energy to be back on the table with a referendum on nuclear reactor number four. And so I think these issues were interfaced in a complicated way for the DPP going forward. I think crafting energy policy is one of the toughest jobs in Taiwan's <laughs> government. I mean, on the one hand, uh, you know, the public wants to cut back on coal. They want to phase out nuclear energy. They don't want offshore wind turbines to disrupt the habitat of pink dolphins and, and birds. And they and then they want to have enough LNG to outlast a naval blockade by China. I think, uh, what's the storage capacity now for LNG? Two, two weeks. They can store two weeks' worth of LNG, uh, the, the gas. Uh, and then there's the algae reefs. So um, it's really, these, these officials are really, really put in a kind of a, an impossible no-win position. But do you think, Bill, the government's doing enough to put its case here about why it needs to build the LNG system and platform in this particular area? 
No, I don't. I don't think it's doing enough. I think it could do a much better job of of making making a good case for this. I think that's right. I think the government is uh, not really doing too well in terms of actually explaining just why they're pushing for this at present. I think it would make more effective. It'd be more effective in terms of a rhetoric for the side mission to attack the KMT for switching positions or saying that it, it's you know these these plans were originally drawn up by the KMT or pointing to the national security issue. But instead, it's just more this narrative of just claiming that the environmental effects will be limited, which I think is not really convincing people. Um, but it's an interesting issue because again, just it points to how the two parties have traded positions, uh, but also then there's concern that, about the KMT co-opting these uh, civil society groups that have oftentimes historically sided with the DPP uh, just because the DPP is in power now. And so that's that that could prove a, a danger later on electorally. Um, the KMT jumping on this issue then then is uh, could be a precedent of things to come. And how do you think the government should go about putting its case forward, Bill? Obviously, talking heads on the TV is one thing, but it's a bit dry. That's that's right. That's right. I mean, it's got it's got to it's got to stress the benefits um, and it's got to stress that this is this is a tough issue. You know, it's not not going to be the plan isn't going to be perfect. But um, but Taiwan at the same time has has very serious energy needs. And that's a it's a vulnerability for Taiwan that it can only store about two weeks worth of LNG. And moving away from LNG and talking about something completely different, this past weekend was the 74th anniversary of the 228 incident, and we saw two large memorial events, one in the north and one in the south. President Tsai Ing-wen led government officials to an event commemorating the civil uprising in Kaohsiung, and speaking at that ceremony, Tsai said the event represents the government's repentance over the past mistakes and serves as a reminder that people should cherish their hard-earned freedom. She also said that facing history with honesty will enable the Taiwanese people to understand how governments violate human rights under authoritarian regimes. Now, former President Ma Ying-jeou attended a 228 memorial event in Taipei, where he said people here in Taiwan remain divided by the incident and should seek to embrace reconciliation and move forward. Now, according to Ma, he understands the pain of the victims' families over losing their loved ones, and that's why he chose to review the history and handle government remedial measures as fairly as possible during his, atten- his tenure as president. Now, although Ma's attendance at the event had proven to be somewhat controversial, as we discussed the other week on the show. KMT chairman Johnny Jung took to Facebook to voice his support for Ma's attendance at the Taipei event. And Jung described the 228 incident as being painful for all Taiwanese people. He said the pain does not belong to one specific group, but I have marbles in my mouth today, I do apologise. And he also urged the public to reject political manipulation of the incident. So, Brian, the question is, of course, should Taiwan have a single nationally organised 228 commemorative event like it does National Day, the fireworks, or the Lantern Festival, which goes around the island, yeah? (laughs) And would that be a lot easier than having the two parties go into two competing events for something that probably they should leave their politics at the door before they get on stage. Yeah, it's funny that this time it was divided between the North and the South, particularly because of the fact that DPP has historically been seen as stronger in the South and the KMT stronger, let's say, in Taipei. Um, it's also funny to me because then the alternative, if there was one event, is that there, these these people would be sitting awkwardly next to each other um, at when you would see this in all the photos and, and so forth. Um, that, that might itself be interesting. But I think that uh, it doesn't surprise me that there's this political contention. Um, at the same time, I think the, uh, the issue itself is in somewhat conflicted within the KMT in a very interesting way because there are these kind of ideological hardliners now who are much more uh, not wanting to confront the authoritarian past or even make token gestures toward it, claiming that the DPP is currently enacting a green terror, quote-unquote, that is worse than the white terror. Uh, this is something that Udwani, the former chair, said. Um, or just claiming that the DPP has killed press freedom in Taiwan after events such as the uh, removal of CTI-TV from air. Um, and so I think that then then with Chang, and, and uh, who is, is comparatively more pro-reform and, and wants to change the image of the KMT, 
he will also face backlash from the party for even allowing this to happen with Ma going there and that sort of thing. Um, in the meantime, just the uh, pan-green groups, uh, such as the Taiwan Nation Alliance, withdrew from the uh, Taipei ceremony, will be unhappy. Um, I'm also amused somewhat by the conflicting reports of whether William with- Lai withdrew from the Taipei ceremony after learning that Ma was to be attending. But the Taiwan Nation Alliance claims that this was the case, while Lai denies this. Um, and so I think we'll see. Yeah. So, Bill, do you think they should put, leave their politics aside and go to a memorial event and shut up and remember it as like, this is very bad, it should not happen again? That's excellent PR advice, Gavin. Yeah, that, that's what, <laughs> if, if they hired me as a consultant, I would tell them that this is a day where you listen, not lecture. Uh, keep your message simple. Uh, like you said, a terrible thing happened. Our heart goes out to the victims. Uh, let's all make sure this never, ever happens again. Um, what, you know, I, I saw the headlines, Ma Ying-jeou's headlines, and I just couldn't help but cringe. You know, I saw the headline that said Ma, you know, urges, um, urges Taiwan to move on to move on from the 228 incident. And then the story mentioned that he Ma understand, said he understands the pain of the victims. So, you know, so, so your, your, your father is a prominent lawyer or a doctor. In the middle of the night, these goons come, knock, bang on the door, drag him out, and you never see him again. And for decades, you're not allowed to talk about him or you will be disappeared. Now, how could Ma, as someone who, who grew up in a privileged KMT family, could ever ever understand that uh, he can't he can't so it's ma saying he understands people's pain it just doesn't doesn't ring true and it's just it's it's just terrible pr also putting him on the same stage bill maybe people in taiwan would get to understand that it was a bad event if the if they see the politicians that are usually fighting having to share a stage and having to be solemn together and agree on one thing for one one hour for one day <laughs> Yes, yes, I, I think the optics uh, would would be would be overall would be positive. Some people, some people, as, as Brian mentioned, would 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 find that repulsive that the KMT would be up there. But um, I think I think overall the, the optics would be more favorable. And Brian, you think they could move it around instead of just having it in Taipei? They could do it. Move it around the art, Taipei, Shinzu, Kaohsiung, etc. I thought about that too, similar to the Lantern Festival. Um, but it's also interesting that I think it would interface with local politics and this kind of conflicted thing would happen. For example, because this was the Taipei ceremony and, and for example, the Taipei city government was asked to comment on this. And I think, uh, I believe the deputy mayor of Taipei de- defended Ma's participation in the ceremony. And as you know, we all know, Ko Wenzhou currently as Taipei mayor is somewhere caught between the Pan Green and Pan Blue camps and is sort of edging closer to the Pan Blue camp. In that sense, I think that this, this comes up as, this will come up as a local issue and then become a political issue as to whether it takes place in an area controlled by the Pan Green camp or the Pan Blue camp. But so much Lantern Festival, that, that'd be interesting. And maybe they should be listening to Elvis Costello's What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. <laughs> anyway, before we go, a 47-year-old man from Tainan has set a new record for the longest name here in Taiwan after filing for a new name containing 25 characters with the city's Anping District Household Registration Office. Now, Huang Xinxiang's new name has been roughly translated by several news agencies here as... Huang Dalan is the blessed darling and sweetheart of the god of joy, god of wealth, god of misfortune, god of earth and all the gods. And he says, as a devout Taoist, he applied for the name change because he believes his mammoth moniker will bring him good luck. However, he still says he's using his three-character name, Huang Dalan, on social media and his friends can call him whatever they like, including Old Huang. Now, because his name exceeds the 15-character limit on national identification cards and a official at the household registration office had to copy it by hand onto his new ID card bill. <laughs> the first question that came to my mind is 
how big would his chop be? He's got big pockets. <laughs> no. <laughs> he went, he'd have to bring it to the bank in a suitcase or something. Yeah, I also think people just not believe that this is this man's actual name. So when you go around with such an unwieldy name, people just kind of react like, what? Like, huh? And so I think that that could create issues. But if it, he believes that it brings some fortune, well, we'll see. Um, I'm also amused that but part of the name, I think, in the very end also exhorts him to be careful of his liver. Because <laughs> he picked, apparently he picked, he also added the god of misfortune because he believed that if you just have good luck in your name, oh. you're ignoring misfortune, which could affect everybody and all of us. I guess you try to balance it out then. <laughs> any, any plans to change your name, Brian? Uh, I think not now, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I've always had issues with my name, actually. Just um, English name, the pronunciation is very difficult. My Chinese language name, it's a very feminine-sounding name. So I get a lot of emails addressed to uh, Miss Chu. And so, but no plans. Maybe no plans you should so consider a name change. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. And of course, Bill, do you think this chap ever buys things online? <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, good, good luck with that. Yeah. And of course, his passport. Could that cause a problem, Brian? You think it's passable with 25 characters? That's true. Maybe you should be fortunate that it's a time of COVID. There's not a lot of traveling going on. Otherwise, I think that would create some issues. <laughs> of course, you could always become a politician. Hmm. Never mind. I'll leave it there. Anyway, well, we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Bill Foreman. Thanks for having me. And Brian Hugh. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.